Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am your host, Sean Williamson. A few weeks ago, before the Safer at Home order was announced in Wisconsin, I was walking out to my garage at night to get something or take out the recycling or drink a beer in peace. And as I got to the side garage door, I had that feeling. Like when you're running up the basement stairs after you turn out the lights, like something is chasing you. That fear that comes from nowhere, that creeps, that reverses the blood in your veins. Standing at that side door, I stayed in the fear. I stood there. The alley was lit, as it always is, and I looked out into the empty pavement, waiting for somebody or something to come around the corner into the light. I just waited there, on that stretch of sidewalk, my child's wagon overturned in the yard, a soccer ball stationary, shining in the moonlight, and nothing came around the corner. I wondered, what am I afraid of here? Am I afraid the virus is going to come around the corner, suddenly a monster, face dark in the shadow of the alley lamp, stalk towards me, babbling curses, saying, Come, come here, you're mine now, come with me below. No, I'm not afraid of that, exactly. Am I afraid that someone will come to my house to take my things, my money, my tools, my half-done 12-pack of PBR, my sack of jasmine rice on a shelf in the basement? Perhaps, but also not exactly. As I stood in the yard, the sky big and the air paranoid everywhere, even in my little neighborhood by the airport, I thought that perhaps the threat of sickness and death, the uncertainty, was animating within me indefinable fears. Like just last night, after spending an hour reading about the thousands of people who have died in New York City, I turned the corner into my living room and yelped as the coat rack near my front door turned into, for an instant, an intruder. And then I thought the same thing. No, this can't be. No one is coming around that corner. That is just a coat rack. It is absurd to fear a fear. But really, it isn't absurd. It might be the most natural thing we can do. In The Uncanny, Sigmund Freud uses the classic tale The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman to explain how childhood anxieties and fears, as well as the action of being born, being transported from the safety of the womb to a cold and uncertain world will influence how we react to catastrophic events and how fear manifests in our subconscious and conscious minds. I'm going to read this now, but I'm not going to do the Sigmund Freud voice. Sorry. This fantastic tale, as Freud writes, begins with the childhood recollections of the student Nathaniel. In spite of his present happiness, he cannot banish the memories associated with the mysterious and terrifying death of the father he loved. On certain evenings, his mother used to send the children to bed early, warning them that the Sandman was coming. And sure enough, Nathaniel would not fail to hear the heavy tread of a visitor with whom his father would then be occupied that evening. When questioned about the Sandman, his mother, it is true, denied that such a person exists, except as a form of speech but his nurse could give him more definitive information. He is a wicked man. He comes when children won't go to bed and throws handfuls of sand in their eyes so that they jump out of their heads all bleeding. 
Then he puts the eyes in a sack and carries them off to the moon to feed his children. Although little Nathaniel was sensible and old enough not to believe in such gruesome attributes to the figure of the Sandman, he determined to find out what the Sandman looked like. And one evening, when the Sandman was again expected, he hid himself in his father's study. He recognized the visitor as the lawyer Coppelius, a repulsive person of whom the children were frightened when he occasionally came to a meal, and how he identified this Coppelius with the dreaded Sandman. Concerning the rest of the scene, Hoffman already leaves us in doubt whether we are witnessing the first delirium of the panic-stricken boy or a succession of events which are to be regarded in the story as being real. His father and the guests begin to busy themselves at the hearth with glowing flames. The little eavesdropper hears Coppelius call out, Here with the eyes! and betrays himself by screaming aloud. Coppelius seizes him, and is about to drop grains of red-hot coal out of the fire into his eyes so as to cast them out on the hearth. His father begs him off and saves his eyes. After this, the boy falls into a deep swoon and a long illness followed upon his experience. Those who lean towards a rationalistic interpretation of the Sandman will not fail to recognize in the child's fantasy the continued influence of his nurse's story. The grains of sand that are to be thrown into the child's eyes turn into red-hot grains of coal out of the flame, and in both cases they are meant to make his eyes jump out. So that's some pretty wild stuff. Scary stuff. And the whole story is wilder still. Um, if you ever want to check out something that you can read a bunch of times and not ever quite totally understand what's going on, as I have, I suggest reading... Uh, the Uncanny by Sigmund Freud. But anyways, if we apply the story of the Sandman and Freud's interpretation of the Sandman to the current moment where people are dying and getting sick all over the world, infected by a virus that cannot be seen, that cannot be bombed or shot or imprisoned, that cannot be separated by the established means of control, it is clear we are not facing one fear but many fears. We fear the COVID-19 virus can kill us and everyone we love, but we also fear starvation from losing our jobs and our means to buy food. We fear exposure if we lose our housing. We fear what history tells us about disaster and how it tramples the weakest of us all. We fear we will never get back to what we were. We fear that we have spent our lives wrongly, that we have worshipped unimportant things. We fear the coat on the standing rack. We fear that someone will come around the corner. That alley, right there, empty but lit, pavement white. I fear other people because people do violent and unpredictable things when they are desperate, because people will do anything when their needs are not met. And in this way, I fear that the figure stepping out into the light beyond my garage will be me, but a me I do not know, and I cannot control, a me I cannot trust. There are encouraging signs. 
It appears that social distancing is slowing the spread of the COVID-19 virus. People in hospitals are doing insane, courageous work, and they deserve all our appreciation. There are reasons to be hopeful. There are also reasons to be afraid. And there is every reason to remain vigilant. That is kind of what our show is about today. How we handle disaster, how we handle fear, how we make it through to the other side. Our first story comes from Adam Krauss, who has appeared on more than 30 recordings and published numerous essays and books, including The Revolution Will Be Hilarious and other essays, New Compass, 2018. We are lucky to have him again. Here is Adam. In times like these, in times of crisis, responses can vary wildly. On Thursday, March 26, in response to the coronavirus, the Environmental Protection Agency relaxed environmental regulations, allowing power plants, factories, and other facilities to self-regulate or, in other words, to do and dump whatever they please. Andrew Wheeler of the EPA explained that the decision was made because, quote, Challenges resulting from efforts to protect workers and the public from COVID-19 may directly impact the ability of regulated facilities to meet all federal regulatory requirements. End quote. Does this make any sense? No, of course it doesn't. But in moments of extraordinary tumult and confusion, governments love to grant the private sector every item on their wish list, quickly, while no one is looking, entrenching mechanisms for ever more extreme profits at the expense of everyone else. Following Hurricane Katrina, the state of Louisiana handed more than 120 public schools to private, for-profit school management companies. More than 7,000 mostly minority unionized school employees were fired. Local school boards lost oversight. The charter school companies did a terrible job educating anyone, but a great job making money, money that was funneled far away from Louisiana. Does any of this make sense? No, of course it doesn't. And I could go on, and on, and on. The private sector loves to privatize everything in sight every time disaster strikes, taking federal emergency funds on their way in and local revenue forever after. Naomi Klein wrote a whole book about it. It's called The Shock Doctrine. There are other responses to disaster. In an essay called Walking Each Other Home that I wrote a few years ago, I talked about the experiences that put a young Dorothy Day on the path to her radical work in the Catholic worker movement. I wrote, Dorothy Day was eight years old and living in Oakland when the great earthquake of 1906 struck. As she later wrote of the earthquake's aftermath, What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Edora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, People loved each other.
Disasters can quite literally tear down the walls around us, taking away our isolated atomism and necessitate new ways of interacting. When the existing order crumbles, new systems can arise spontaneously, ones often based on care and compassion. We can learn to love each other. A home made invisible and impossible by our collective isolation suddenly becomes visible and inhabitable. When existing institutions cease to function, an emptiness emerges which new systems can fill. The people with the power and the capital to most quickly step into that emptiness will happily do so and will happily profit at your expense. But if that emptiness can get quickly filled through self-organized mutual aid systems like the type Dorothy Day experienced in Oakland, then there is less room for profiteers to exploit chaotic situations for profit. The care we require can come from each other, not with a price tag and disastrous results. Rather than paternalistic approaches to aid, humans can help other humans, sidestepping market forces. Groups are collecting food and hygiene products, making them freely available at pickup sites, running errands for the immunocompromised and vulnerable, making masks, putting bulk food in their yard, or any number of other useful activities performed spontaneously and without prompting from above. Our collective needs are growing. Existing systems are collapsing. There is so much work to be done. In a recently rediscovered lecture from 1978, the ecologist Murray Bookchin makes the distinction between futuristic and utopian thinking. He says, I'm a utopian. I want to see this word revived. I want to see us use it. I want to see us think utopia, not think futurism. What is futurism? Futurism is the future as it exists today projected 100 years from now. That's what futurism is. If you have a population of X billions of people, how are you going to have food? How are you going to do this? Nothing has changed. All they do is make everything either bigger or they change the size. You live in 30-story buildings. You live in 60-story buildings. Frank Lloyd Wright was going to build an office building that was one mile high. That was futurism. The simple fact is I just don't believe that we have to extend in the name of futurism and in the idea of idealism, the present into the future. We have to change the present so that the future looks very, very different from what it is today. This is a terribly important notion to convey. We are facing the same challenge and the same opportunity, but in an even more terrifying and deadly situation. So can we change the present so that the future becomes one we want to inhabit? Right now, in the midst of a pandemic, we can wallow in the apocalypse and complain about ineffectual bureaucracies that are only efficient when it comes to making themselves huge profits, or we can just go ahead and do the work that needs to be done through our own direct initiative, laying the groundwork for a future where those ineffectual bureaucracies won't even find a vacuum to fill, where the well-being and security of all are already well taken care of. In addition to fear of lung failure for everyone we know, this pandemic has created a rupture in the given. We have a choice. We can pick up the remains of those systems that left us woefully unprepared for this with no real social safety net while the natural world heats up and breaks down around us, or we can stride through that rupture with nothing but our imaginations and the will to build a better world. 
There's a Google Doc compiling links to mutual aid organizations all over the country. It's great for both making contacts and gathering ideas. You might even start one of your own. We'll put a link to it in our show notes as well as that 1978 Bookchin lecture. Just peruse the links in the document. There's a lot of helpful work being done. The list breaks down between general information and links to organizations on a state-by-state basis. There are health tips, how to know your rights during rent strikes, how to make masks. It's full of useful information. So, help those who are struggling. And if you're struggling, accept the help others offer. Keep those connections alive into the future. Even if the least you can do seems like almost nothing, it's still absolutely worth doing. Our next story comes from Jim Winship. Jim has been a professor of social work for more than 30 years. He is a digital storyteller and community organizer who is currently working compiling stories for the Hunger Relief Federation in Wisconsin. Here's Jim. Anxiety and its older sibling fear and its first cousin stressed out. They're violating our social distance these days. They get close. They close in on us. How do we deal with anxiety and fear and stress? Or put another way, how do we live with them? I'm Jim Winship, a longtime social work professor and occasional storyteller, and these are my thoughts. First, some caveats. I am fortunate not to suffer chronic anxiety or panic attacks. I'm just someone who gets really anxious at times, like many of you, and those anxious at time moments have gotten more frequent since the advent of the pandemic. What I'm doing here is sharing some things that I've picked up and learned over time that work for me. And as the lyrics go from a song by the band, you take what you need and you leave the rest. If you think about anxiety on a 10-point scale, right now we all have a baseline of 4 to 5, regardless of what else is askew in our lives. We don't know what next week or next month is going to be like. If that's not anxiety producing, well, what is? Life right now, and right now is the second week of April, is really different than it was a month ago, different than it was two weeks ago. I worry about people I know who have lost jobs, whose lives have been majorly interrupted, who are at risk for contracting the virus. I don't pray much, but I am praying for my niece Becca, a nurse, and our friend Dorothy, a physician. I mourn the loss of John Prine. You may know someone who's tested positive or is struggling with the virus. If you are one of those who lost a job, had your career put on hold, are doing homeschooling while holding down a job, someone who's worried about getting by financially, your anxiety level can be creeping toward 10 on that 10-point scale. So what do I do about my anxiety? First, I journal. I've been journaling in the mornings for well over a decade. I've changed my journaling practices these days to base it around these questions. First, what specifically is causing my anxiety and what can I do about it? Aside from the number of COVID-19 deaths and the incompetent federal government response, what closer to home is making me anxious? When I think of this, what usually comes into mind are things I need to do or am putting off. In that one class online that I teach, responsibilities from the community organizations in which I'm active, things around the house or yard. Paying attention to these, crossing items off a list, gives me a sense of satisfaction. If the brain does not have enough bandwidth to focus on both negative and positive thoughts, 
at least at the moments when I'm feeling good about what I've accomplished, anxiety does not seem to be present. Second, how can I make a difference? Taking the focus off of myself helps me. I'm calling and emailing friends and acquaintances. I called one friend the day after she lost her job, and I think that the talking helped. We donate money as we are able. I'm starting to collect stories from food pantries around Wisconsin for the Hunger Relief Federation in the hope they'll be useful once the pandemic has passed to tell the story of those organizations' response for awareness and advocacy purposes. Will it work? I don't know, but it gives me a sense I'm doing something. Perhaps the most important thing is just getting comfortable living with my anxiety. My anxiety is a part of who I am, and I have to admit that being anxious about successfully completing a project helps me accomplish it and get things done. I am one of those people for whom little anxiety often equals little adrenaline or motivation. You can personalize your anxiety, give it a name, invite it to sit beside you, but not hug the whole seat. Let me tell you a story about once when I did that with anxiety's older sibling, fear. Our daughter Hope was 13 at the time, taking ski lessons one winter at the near Pine Alpine Valley Resort. Starting right after Christmas, she asked me to come with her once and ski with her. I was cross-country skiing at the time, but I'd never been downhill skiing. My reflexes are not great, so each time she asked, I put her off, saying we would do it another week. Finally, in early March, it was to be the last week when she could go skiing, and she confronted me with, You promised! So I agreed to go skiing with her that week. That Thursday, the day we were to go skiing, fear was all I was feeling. The snow had thawed and frozen several times in the weeks leading up to that day, and I anticipated the slopes being icy. As we were getting ready to go, after asking her if she would rather go to the movies and being told we were going skiing, I remember an approach from narrative therapy in which you named the behavior or disorder that was afflicting you and engage it in dialogue. So driving out to Alpine Valley in our blue Camry, I was quiet with this internal conversation. So, temor, which is a Spanish word for fear. I know that you've been telling me if I do this, I'll probably die, or if not that, break both ankles, and I'm too busy to have to deal with broken ankles. That could happen, but I also know if I turn around now, Hope will remember this evening when her dad backed out of a promise for a very long time, and that actually bothers me more than the prospect of severe bodily injury. All the way there, Taymor was, was figuratively sitting on the console between my daughter and me, telling me it was not too late to fake a heart attack, or that my daughter would not really mind, and I was telling Taymor that probably he was right about the ankles, and we would see. We got there, and as I thought, the slopes were essentially ice. I went to the bunny hill, luckily the only one there, while Hope was skiing on an intermediate slope. I went down the bunny hill twice and obviously did not die. I did fall down several times and more than once skied into the underbrush on the side of the slope when I felt like I was going too fast. I broke nothing and Tamor was mostly quiet on the way back. Name your anxiety and fear, claim it as part of who you are, and don't let it run the show. For me, in spite of the approaches I have, sometimes I'm just filled with free-floating anxiety. And then the best thing I can do is to do something else and get out of my head. Sometimes I go for a hike. The other night when that happened, I picked up a novel I'd been meaning to read and got hooked within the first few pages. The next day was better. So that's what I do. 
If any of these approaches seem worth trying, take what you need and take good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening. This has been Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. A review on Apple Pods is a true gift. Show music by Sean Stefani. Voiceover by Mariel Alshwang. Playing us out today is Snag. Snag plays loud, urgent, purposeful songs about the impending horror of climate disaster. Their excellent debut self-titled full-length album can be purchased at snagmke.bandcamp.com. This is the only rational response. If humankind can't overcome its immediate interests enough to ensure its own survival, then the only rational response is despair.